Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be joined on the line by Enver Dumini, CEO of Cape Town Tourism, and we'll be chatting about so many things, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. PR Nikki Arthur recently spent some time in the Klaseri Private Nature Reserve, where she went on a walking safari in this wildlife-rich region. Frankie Black, assistant editor of Travel Ideas magazine, spent some time working on yachts in the Caribbean, and she'll be telling us what you need to do if you'd like to spend some time working your way around the world. And just a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to Travel with Karen Key. Well, as I said earlier, there is so much happening in Cape Town at the moment. I thought it was absolutely necessary to chat with Enver Dumini. And he's the CEO of Cape Town Tourism, and he's joining me now on the line. Enver, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Good evening, Karen, to you and your listeners. Well, I, I'm just going through all the stuff happening here at the moment. I'm absolutely exhausted. I can only imagine how exhausted you must be at this point. Absolutely exhausted, but I think we're thriving on just the, the energy that's happening here in Cape Town, just keeping us going. I think our most important accolade we've had so far is the prestigious New York Times travel list for 2014 put us as number one as the best place to visit this year. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we were pleasantly surprised, not, not, not shocked, but pleasantly surprised to be number one. We knew we'd be in the top 10. But um, yes, definitely an accolade from a respected uh, global publisher. Um, and if we look at it, uh, we were ahead of uh, many other global cities like Vancouver, Northern California, I think Aspen, Belize, and even Dubai. So definitely punching above our weight. There was an interesting article, I think it was in the, the London Telegraph newspaper, that actually made reference to that. And it, sort of, it was a slightly backhanded compliment in a way when they were talking about South Africa's weak rand and how terrible the rand was doing. But on the other side, the flip side of that is that it's now become one of the most affordable destinations and they actually refer to it as the most affordable destination as well as being the top destination as mentioned by the New York Times. So we seem to, it seems to be spreading across the globe in the, in the media as well that this is the best place to come this year. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's not just the New York Times that said it. I think the Gone in the UK said it. Even Lonely Planet um, gave us an award in November last year saying that, you know, Cape Town is definitely one of the top three places to go to for 2014. So you're absolutely correct. I think it's a combination of both, you know, our beauty, world design capital, 20 years of democracy, but also a thriving and a changing position for Cape Town beyond the beauty. There's an urban development and change and shift that's happening. It is definitely exciting, not just for, for visitors, but also for locals. Now, you mentioned the design capital of the world. That's us this year. So, you know, that, that as well, I mean, that all these things together, it's, it's just, it's all sort of come together in one time, and it's making a huge impact on tourism here. Yes. I mean, if you look at uh, previous world design capitals, um, cities like Turin in Italy, um, because of world design capital, they experienced probably more visitor numbers in 2008 than any other year, even beating... Um, 2006, when they hosted the Winter Olympics, um, City of Seoul, because of World Design Capital, got into New York Times list for 31 places to go in 2010. So absolutely, uh, these accolades, whether it's New York Times, The Guardian, or you know, Lonely Planet, um, just continue to share with the world what we as locals know is definitely one of the best places to live and to visit. 
So for those who aren't quite sure what design capital of the, of, of the world means to a city like Cape Town, what exactly is going to be happening this year? Uh, <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me ask you, Anne, but what isn't going to be happening this year? <laughs> that might be easier to answer. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I can't agree with you more. But, but in a nutshell, there's an official program which the mayor of Cape Town kicked off on New Year's Eve. So that was one of the big signature events. There's another three signature events happening where there's a design gala um, on the 26th of February. Um, there's a big design policy conference focusing on Africa being held in November and then a major design house exhibition also happening in November. But scattered amongst that throughout the year, because it is a year-long program, is about 450 recognized projects, as well as other community projects, which will cover the 111 wards of the city itself. So this is quite a a big um, program for the full year. I mean, 450 recognized projects is, is quite a task. So there's going to be pretty much something happening almost everywhere around the city. Yep, and I think that is also the reason, if you look at it, it's for you know, using design to transform, you know, to change. It's about using design, and not just about the aesthetics. So I think sometimes people get hung on design as just you know, the beauty. Design is also about functionality and purpose, and it's how do you take those design elements and utilize that to address some of our social challenges in Cape Town. Well, I mean, I was just reading some of the things, just a few of them. I mean, there's something called food pods, and that constructs sustainable farms, giving residents access to healthy produce. Now, that wouldn't have been something you'd think of as design. as You know, you, you think about interior design, and you think that's what I think a lot of people have in their head is that's what design is. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I said it's more than just, you know, the aesthetics. It's mm. about functionality. It's about taking a common problem and just thinking innovatively of how do I shift it? You know, do I change a process? Do I change a function? One of the coolest things I heard was where, for example, if we look in some of our communities, um, when they go to day hospitals, a lot of them have to kind of queue there from 3 o'clock in the morning just to be seen by a doctor. Sometimes they're not even seen, and these are aged people. And someone said, well, you know, if you look at it, mobile, um, basically everybody's got a phone or a mobile phone in their homes. So why not create an SMS ticketing system, which then allows the people not having to wait there, you know, for, for long periods and not even having to see a doctor where the ticketing system actually allows them to say, okay, this is the time of your appointment, this is when you'll be seen, and send you the notification where you are in the queue. So no, that type of innovation is just utilizing design to, again, address a social challenge. There's so, I mean, there's just so much of that, which is, is it, it's very heartening, I think, to hear about these projects that are starting. And you sort of wonder why people hadn't thought of this before. You know? <laughs> why wait till now? But the fact that it's here now is, is great. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if, if you look at those 450 projects, I mean, they stem from social change to technological change to even the aesthetics. I mean, we can't forget about those. Mm. Um, uh, one of my favorites is the Maboning Lalela project experience. Yes. Mm. What they're doing is they're taking some private homes in the townships and converting them into public space and art galleries. So what is quite cool is that you would have, you know, a reputable art gallery taking one of their artworks and placing it into that home which allows them for a story and a conversation. Another interesting bit about it is that actually some of the homeowners in the township, they went to go and find some of their old artwork, and they decided to put it up alongside, you know, the, the well-known artists. And that creates, again, a story, which means it also then gets people involved in art, and that it's also then accessible for everyone, which I think is just absolutely amazing. It is, you sort of wonder, hope that we can continue this at the end of, after the end of the year, that this whole sort of vibe and the enthusiasm continues and doesn't just end at the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's the challenge for us. I mean, if you look at World Cup, if you look at all the other bigger events, 
Uh, it is about how do you create that sustainability. And the importance of these things is like World Cup, there were legacy projects. It will continue beyond the year. 2014 is just a year to recognize us as the World Design Capital where we hand it off to the next city. But about these projects, about the sustainability of them, and you're absolutely right, we need to keep that momentum going. One of the other great things we had earlier this year was the 23 millionth visitor. I mean, that's a lot of people on top of Table Mountain. And it was uh, someone called, which I thought was so so nice. His name was Tom Sankwa from um, Port Elizabeth. And his name in Closa means fortune, which I thought he was very fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing I thought. I mean, when Tom Sankwa actually got the... The uh, uh, you know, notification that he was the 23rd million visitor, I think he kind of stood there in shock and awe, realizing, yeah, it is actually a big number. I mean, the KWA opened up in 1929, as far as I remember, and to have the 23rd million visitor is quite a significant thing for us. But more importantly for me, what was, what was interesting was that in the last 14 months, they've actually increased you know, from 22 million to 23 million visitors. So in the space of a year, just that amount and the rate of growth Four Table Mountain visitors was actually phenomenal. Has this got anything to do with the fact that Table Mountain is now one of the new wonders of nature? Yes, it does. And I think, again, just to remind your listeners as well, this is the important thing about this and all these campaigns that we work on as Cape Town Tourism, along with the city and our tourism partners, is that we need to continually either reinvent our offering or find new offerings. And the New Seven Wonders um, you know, campaign was one of those things. A bit slow in the beginning as typical Capetonians, but I think it did pick up momentum at the end when everybody started getting involved, the closer we get to being successful. And for us, the accolade has definitely helped increase those numbers to the attraction. Um, but also, what also helps is always good weather, because that's the, one of the challenges that um, you know, these attractions do face, whether it's Robin Island or uh, Table Mountain. Yeah, and especially with Table Mountain, we have a problem in Cape Town, as we all know, who live here with the wind. And obviously, when the wind howls, the cable car doesn't operate. Yes. Um, anecdotally, what I've, I finally enough did uh, in my first few months as CEO, I actually took weather patterns <laughs> over, over a full year, and I then applied that over tourism arrivals. And what I did is I kind of said, well, there is no real correlation between tourism arrivals and weather. And if you then take a look at the weather patterns, there's always wind in Cape Town. You know, there's certain months or days when it's, you know, a gale force, but every day there's a wind no matter where you are in Cape Town. And I think it's how do you utilize wind to create, again, another tourism um, offering or element. Um, Wind surfing, a big element which is beginning to increase in its uh, popularity. And we begin to see international wind surfers and kite surfers coming to Cape Town to, again, enhance and and, and experience that wind that we have. So, you know what, it's like exchange rates. There's good days, there's bad days, but, you know, somebody's always winning on the end. Well, as a born and bred Capetonian, I... People think I'm completely insane, but I love the wind because if it wasn't for the wind, we would all die of the heat. So at least it keeps the heat down. <laughs> I agree, you know? especially over the last two or three days. <gasps> yes. I, well, I would have been grateful for a little bit more wind these last few days, I can tell you. Enver, how do we do over the festive season? Well, over the festive season, if I look at uh, airport arrivals through Cape Town International, we received about 412,000 passengers, um, which is about 2% up compared to 2012. Um, a majority of that, about 78%, are still domestic, but 22% was foreign. Now, on average, we normally get about 15% foreign arrivals over December. So the 22% is definitely an indication that they are coming a lot sooner. Um, traditional you know, foreign arrivals normally come Jan, Feb, March. That's when we see our actual peak season. 
So what was interesting for us is when I looked at those numbers is that already in November we had a 14% year-on-year increase. Even though a 5% year-on-year increase over December is not as great as 14%, but for me the indication is that it's moving in the right direction, which is always good for tourism. And as we mentioned right at the beginning, the, the weak rand, as opposed, you know, when you compare it to the dollar and to the pound, you know, we are a really desirable destination now. Yeah, and for me, one thing that I always like to look at, and, and again, just reviewing exchange rates and the impact it has on tourism, it does have a part to play in the consideration. So when you're thinking of, well, where do I want to go to on holiday? It's not maybe the biggest factor that determines it, because it's about, okay, I want to go to a destination that has these experiences, or... I want to go there to, you know, enhance something or live, um, put something on my bucket list. And therefore, the accolades we receive allows us to get into that bucket list for consideration. The exchange rate then decides where that person is going to. But more importantly for me on exchange rate, because it fluctuates every day, mm. the spend actually happens in destination. So, you know what, when you get into Cape Town and you've got your pound or your euro, and you're saying, well, before I could only maybe buy you know, one T-shirt or two T-shirts. Now I can buy five. So what you start seeing is that the behavior of the, of the tourist changes when the exchange rate is in their favor. So they would spend more in destination, which is also good for the economy. Well, I don't know how accurate this is, but in, I think it was the Telegraph newspaper in, in the UK said that foreigners spent an estimated $1.2 billion in the city last year. Does that sound about right? Because it's an awful lot of money. Yeah, well, if I look at the study done by the city of Cape Town, um, they actually did an economic study and they calculated, I think tourism contributed about 14.6 billion rand. So if you had to do the conversion, it sounds about right. Sure. And hopefully it will be even better this year. <laughs> yes, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of the big things actually happening this week, we've got three huge ocean liners arriving. Yeah. <laughs> Again, more action for Cape Town. Mm. Um, I think with the Queen Mary coming in, there's uh, you know, a lot of excitement uh, I've heard some uh, people already lining up to wanting to just, you know, climb on board and see what's happening. And they can't, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. Um, but anything for us, and I think this importance of, uh, if you look at the strategy for cruise, cruise tourism in Cape Town. Now, Cape Town has been a port city from inception. That's what we've been. And with a working harbor and, you know, the growth and popularity of VNA Waterfront, cruise tourism, if you look globally, is one of those... Um, strategies that help to increase the tourism numbers and the spend and the yield. However, we also need to realize that how does this also impact on the local economy? Because as much as you're going to get a lot more tourists, the impact on your environment also needs to take, mm. be taken into consideration. So as Cape Town, even though we love the numbers, um, we also need to be mindful of what that impact is. And a good example is, is when, I mean, I drove around um, December just to go and, and, and engage with the visitors. And interesting enough, you know, it took me a couple of hours just to go down the street, you know, or drive around. <laughs> that impact also has an impact on the visitor experience because visitors to our, to our city, you know, they've got two things that are, you know, top of mind. They have limited budget and limited time. And that all affects the actual overall visitor experience. So as much as I love all the visitors to come, I would also like to make sure that we're also able to manage the number of visitors. And what is happening with the new, um, was it the landing area or whatever it was they wanted to do at the waterfront, somewhere down at the docks, actually the harbour, for the cruise liners? Because I know there's been a lot of talk over the last few years of building something a little bit better for where the cruise liners dock. Yes, and I think that's in line with the cruise liner statute. So as far as I'm aware is that the VNA waterfront, the city of Cape Town, and I think it's uh, Portnet, have agreed to exactly where it's going to be located. 
Um, there are still some, I think, technical issues that they need to resolve between themselves. But as far as I know, there is a go-ahead for the, this uh, cruise terminal to, to start being, well, or for construction to start on this. Um, as far as the date is, I'm not too aware of which, what date that is. So that is something that is on the cards, though? Yes, definitely. Because I think it's something we desperately need. Yeah. Well, I, I th- again, I think it's about, you know, how do we manage that, which is very important for me. This is one of the biggest challenges for destinations. And we look at Cape Town, I think, you know, as much as we're blessed with all the beauty, anything else, you know, tourism and the growth of tourism also needs to be, you know, managed properly because that's the importance of destination management. It's not just saying, well, you know, everybody come, and when everybody comes, and the environment is damaged, which means nobody comes. Mm. So the sustainability of tourism is always key as well. I'm going to ask you a really stupid question now, Enver. Um, so is there anything I've left out? Well, we've pretty much covered everything. Uh, what else is happening this year? I mean, have I left anything out? I think I've pretty much covered... I don't think there's anything left to cover, basically, with what's happening here this year. Yeah, no, I mean, there's quite a bit. I mean, there's also international triathlon that's coming soon. Um, I know that the city is also bidding for another few couple of big events. We've just had the Chan. Um, there's the J&B Met happening <laughs> there's design mm. in Daba, to Oceans Marathon, and the list goes on and on. on and on. <laughs> like I said, I should have asked you what isn't happening this year or what isn't going on in Cape Town because it's a very, very busy city. No, absolutely. And it's definitely the place to visit, the place to live, and the place to do business. Now, you, you've been CEO since the last year. Was the, how, long, how many months have you been in the job now? Uh, five months and loving it. I was about to say, how's it going? Are you glad that you're in that seat or are you sort of thinking, what on earth did I do? Well, you know, there are days where you think both ways. And I anecdotally said to the team the other day, I said to them, and I bought my airtime. I hope it gets renewed often. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're actually quite blessed to be able to be CEO of tourism in a city that is so busy and that is so popular and is, is so well received and and rewarded, as far as accolades are concerned, by international media and international tourists who keep flocking here because of that. Yeah, absolutely blessed. And for me, it's also not just about what Cape Town Tourism does. I think it's a combination of everyone's efforts from the city of Cape Town through to the, you know, an organized tourism industry, through to our citizens. I mean, it's through that combination that we are able to offer such a great tourism product. And you know what? Uh, I wouldn't want any other job. Well, the one thing I was very impressed when you were talking about the visitor numbers, it's really nice to see the locals or the South Africans coming to Cape Town because that's, I think, possibly one of the big, best things. I really enjoy the, the locals, the residents, South African residents exploring their own country, and I think that's very important. Yeah, I, I, I can't agree with you more because I think one of the things that I found out, again, in talking to visitors, specifically the local ones, is that because of the exchange rate, they decided not to go overseas Mm. this year and spend it in Cape Town. And they were so surprised by, again, what Cape Town has to offer because most of the time they come here for business, it's in and out. There's some they come with their families. And because of the offering and the varied offering and diverse offering of Cape Town, you know what, you can do stuff at the five-star level. But there's so many things to do for free, you know, and and do it with your family and friends. And, and, And... and I think that's, again, as much as it's, it's great, it also becomes our Achilles heel because everybody keeps asking, what next? What next? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's next, Enver? Well, 
uh, what's this space? We'll try and figure that out together. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll catch up with you when you find out what's next. <laughs> but in the meantime, I want to ask, invite all the rest of the South Africans who are listening, please come and visit us here in Cape Town. We love having you. And uh, come and enjoy it. It's absolutely fabulous. Enver, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on the show this evening. And uh, good luck with the rest of the year. It's going to be a busy one. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Enver Dumini is CEO of Cape Town Tourism. And for more information on what's happening in the city and the surrounding areas, take a look at www.capetown.travel. They're also on Facebook and Twitter as Cape Town Tourism. And um, I think seeing as we've been talking about Cape Town so much, let's have some music from one of Cape Town's favourite sons. It's Robin Auld with a song called Heavy Water.
one of Cape Town's own, Robin Ald, with heavy water. Well, before we carry on this evening, I just wanted to tell you about the former headquarters of the White Star Shipping Line Company that built the Titanic is now going to become a themed luxury hotel in Liverpool. The unused historic building built in 1896 on Liverpool's James Street will be reopened later this year as 30 James Street, home of Titanic, and that's following a £7 million renovation project. The 65-room hotel will house 300 guests, 310 guests across 11 floors, including a spa area, with each room featuring a reference to the White Star Line, or the era the Titanic was built, as well as people linked to the ill-fated ship, including suites named after Charles Lightoller, the second officer who helped passengers escape, Wallace Hartley, the English violinist who was the ship's band leader, and he actually went down with the ship, he refused to leave, as well as the millionaire American businessman Benjamin Guggenheim, who died during the 1912 tragedy. And two of the rooms will play, pay homage to James Cameron's 1997 film depiction of the disaster, named after the fictional characters Jack Dawson and Rose Dewitt Bouquet. Bucatus, excuse me, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in the film. The dining rooms will be modelled after the Titanic's original dining halls, while the hotel's bar and restaurant Carpathia, named after the ship that rescued the Titanic survivors, will offer views of the Liverpool waterfront from two 100-foot-long balconies circling the roof of the building. And guests can also use their smartphones to scan quick response codes placed around the hotel, where an actor will appear on the screen in front of them to explain more about the various characters featured throughout the property, such as Molly Brown, a wealthy first-class passenger who helped to row one of the lifeboats. The Carpathia Bar and Restaurant and two floors are due to open this April, while the other floors and the spa area are expected to open in September. So if that's something you'd like to visit, I suggest you pop over to Liverpool. Rather expensive, though, but if you can afford to and you're going there on holiday, don't miss that. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, I'm joined in studio this evening by Nikki Arthur, and she owns a PR company called Nikki Arthur PR. Now, towards the end of last year, she took some very, very fortunate journalists to the Classeri Private Nature Reserve, and that's on the border of the Kruger Park. And there are two amazing lodges that she stayed at. And she's going to be telling us about this because it's very different. It's, it's like something you possibly wouldn't have experienced anywhere else. Nikki, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thanks for having me. So tell me, you went up to... So we started the journey in Johannesburg, all, all rather dreading the six hours that we had to drive in the car together. And actually, the drive was so beautiful, leaving the concrete jungle of Johannesburg, moving into the farmlands and up through Delstrom. Um, and before we knew it, we were in the Klaseri Private Game Reserve which is just under 70,000 hectares and forms part of the greater Kruger area. I'd never been there myself, so I was quite looking forward to exploring a new bush location. The nice thing about Klaseri, though, is that it borders the Kruger Park, but there's no fences, so the animals can roam between the two quite freely, which is, I, I really like that idea. Yes, there are unbelievable sightings. We were very lucky. Lots of leopards, prides of lions, and the game come in huge herds. And I think that's a wonderful thing that um, the fences are now going down and everybody is becoming more conservation focused and allowing these corridors of herds to go through and fr- roam freely. Now, this this farm itself, where Klaseri is, this nature reserve, that's actually been in the family, the Pretorius and the Prince families, for, gosh, 
almost forever. And the owners, the, the, the wife, I think, is, is a granddaughter of both of those families. And it's sort of continuing the whole tradition of the family place, family run, family owned. It, it, that must make a huge difference. I must say, for me, that was a very interesting story that was told throughout our stay there. Courtney Blunder married Cecilia Oosthuizen, and she is from the owners back in the day, the Prinsloers and the Pretorius's. So back in the day, these families came to this area and they set up camp and just unbelievable to see the old photographs on the walls. And I must say, they, the story of these families came out during our stay there. And it was, I think they've carried through this message in everything that they do. Families are welcome. It's Cecilia and Courtney Blunder who own the property now. And it's a really personalized value for money Back to Africa, Courtney Blunder is an extremely passionate bush boy who has a lot of qualifications under his belt. He um, has trained with the field guides of South Africa and he has the highest level, a level three um, specialist knowledge and skills of dangerous games. So he is fully equipped to do these walking safaris and just such a great knowledge of the bush area. That's the unusual thing about this. You mentioned it's called Africa on foot and you are literally on foot well you have a choice you can either do the walking tour or you can do the game drive in a vehicle but it's that actual sort of walking feeling the ground beneath your feet I think that a lot of places don't offer I must say that was one of the selling points to um, the media when I took them up is that this is something completely different I know a lot of game lodges you know they do offer this but I think game drives people are more interested in going just on the normal game drives but this is for people who don't want to have the afternoon rest or the morning rest they want to go and really reconnect with nature and Courtney Blander is very very passionate about reconnecting with nature, uninterrupted nature. And I think, you know, the reason that they started this property was because there are so many seven-star lodges out there that they just felt that there was a great need for smaller, more personalized, uninterrupted bush, back-to-nature experiences. And you sure do feel that when you're on foot going through the bush and you never know what's around the corner. But I must say, we did feel very safe with guides that had such good experience. The other thing you talk about is being a smaller group. They only take, I think, about 10 people, which makes it really nice because you don't sort of feel that you have to follow the herd, excuse the pun, but you, you don't have to follow what everybody else wants to do. You can almost decide for yourself at times during the day what you want to do. You know, that's what I loved about it. When you're in a big lodge, you don't, you really have to stick to the schedule. And at both Intamo Tree Camp and Africa on Foot, it really was a personalized experience. The lodge managers were so warm and friendly. We were discussed in the evenings what we wanted to do the next day. And if anybody changed their mind at any point, they really weren't restricted to a schedule. So we were able to, in the mornings, for instance, we were a very enthusiastic group who wanted to get into nature as fast as possible you know as the sun was rising usually game drives start between five and some even some lodges later at seven we wanted to be up at four as that sun was sort of tinging the sky we were very eager to get out there so the rangers just put in a lot of effort and off we went while it was still dark so the mornings were early and then in the afternoons you know we were again a very hyperactive group that just wanted to experience and not miss a minute and off we went on foot for beautiful bush walks, which were, you know, quite daunting, knowing that this big five was roaming free. 
and just the knowledge of the rangers and their plant knowledge, the animal knowledge, the plant knowledge, and just the, the enthusiasm of the rangers to really um, educate us on, on where we were and what surrounded us was quite special. So they had a lot of time on their hands because we were a small group. Now you spent two nights at Africa on foot and two nights at Ntambo Tree Camp. How different were the two locations? Yes, we started at Ntambo Tree Camp, which was something that I have, I mean, I represent a lot of luxury private lodges and it was something that I had never experienced. We really went into the bush, deep into the Clisseri. We kind of wondered where we were going along the way and we arrived at Ntambo Tree Camp to literally wooden structures on stilts overlooking this beautiful plain and then one main area where we had our lunches, there was a small plunge pool which apparently the elephants come and drink in and I've seen the photos electricity limited to certain times of the evening and the day so very different indeed Africa on foot is more of a family there are rondavals but you know luxury and outdoor showers all the luxury in both lodges but really uninterrupted and without the frills and all the fuss everything that you need but I think the main thing with Ntambo Tree Camp was just going up your stairs and there are no fences and that's what I love about the philosophy of this roaming free Kasseri private game reserve is that no fences around Ntambo or Africa on foot, just a cacophony of sounds in the evening. I mean, we just wanted to get our spotlights out on our decks because we're so high up, we're safe to go out of our rooms just on the decks to look. And I believe that Courtney's bringing out those spotlights because we heard hyenas, honey badgers, leopards coughing. It was, it was quite unbelievable. And I think that's something you lose when you're in a concrete structure. So it was, it was unbelievable to be in these tree houses with the whole bush coming alive at night and literally tented structures for the walls so you could really hear through the canvas everything that was happening at night. So tell me about the accommodation options at the two different camps. Ntambo Tree Camp is not for children because of obviously the high stilted rooms. It's more for honeymooners or a family of older children but it really is just a very different experience. So if you're nervous or if this is your first safari, you know, I would say you go for a safer option. But this for me is if you really want to get into the true uninterrupted bush experience and Tambo Tree Camp is for you. It's got all the luxury that you need, but it really is uninterrupted, the staff are warm and friendly, the meals you have all together. So it's almost like an old old worldly bush experience where you all come together as a family and have your meals together and go on game drives when you want to go on the walking safaris the guides are extremely knowledgeable they are mentored by Courtney Blunder and so their experience and knowledge is is exceptional we also had wonderful bush dinners out on this plane in the middle of nowhere so a bucket list experience of dinner out on this plane really in the middle of the bush uh, we were all a bit nervous but the game rangers were looking around with their spotlights but it was just something that I've under the stars and the moon you know something that we've never that I know that the media I was with have never experienced and Africa on foot accommodation wise you said that's more family orientated so Africa on foot is more family orientated. Courtney Blander and Cecilia actually live at Africa on foot. And this is really a family orientated lodge. Children are allowed to go on the game drives. There's a pool, rondavals, 
and Cecilia and Courtney, they have a child, so their first child. So everything is around educating the youth of today and bringing this passion that they have had in their childhoods of, of the bush back to the, instilling that in their children. You actually were very fortunate that you actually went up with a media group, but I'm sure that the same will hold for anyone else wanting to go there. How do you organize this trip? I mean, you said it was a six-hour drive, and I'm sure people aren't hiring cars and all of that. So what is the plan if you want to go there? We worked with Sun Safaris, which is based in Cape Town, Warm and friendly staff. Everything was done so smoothly from the beginning to the end of our trip. Even a follow-up, which was great for us. They know the area well. They understand the routes that need to be taken and the time that it takes to organize everything. And they were just with us every step of the way. So that was great. So if anyone's looking to go, it wouldn't probably be best to contact Sun, Sun Safaris. Sun Safaris, yes, that would be the best idea. And there, But if people are looking to find out more about the costs and all that sort of thing, they can get onto the website. Africa on Foot has a website. It's www.africaonfoot.com. And I'm assuming all that information, rates and costs and whatever else you need to know will be on that website. Yes, that website. Or you can go to the Sun Destinations website, which is actually a group of properties in Botswana and Zambia, which Sun Safaris also organizes trips oh, right. to. Okay. So they fall under Sun Destinations as well, so you can also go to the Sun Destinations website. Is that sundestinations.com? Yes, that's Okay, correct. so you've got, don't say you didn't know how to get a hold of them. It's africaonfoot.com or sundestinations.com. Nikki, just one thing about Klaseri, though. It, it, as you mentioned, well, we, we both mentioned it, that there's not that many people that go on each of these safaris. So are there just the two lodges? How many lodges are actually in Klaseri? There are actually four commercially operated lodges in the, within the Klaseri Private Game Reserve. So what I like about this is often you go on safari and there's all these cars fighting for space for e- at each of the sightings. So there's four lodges, Africa on Foot, which we've chatted about in Tambo Tree Camp, Gomo Gomo Lodge, which is a larger a safari lodge, and Baobab Ridge, which is family-friendly and self-catering. So I really that's something I really enjoyed, not harassing the animals, giving them space, and really just viewing them in a relaxed way. Nice that there's a couple of options. If people want to do the self-catering thing, there's also that option. So yes, that there's is. There's a couple of options. Yes. Do they have anything new? I mean, I don't know what, what you could possibly do more than what you told us is happening there, but anything new coming up this year? Yes, Africa on Foot. Uh, Courtney's extremely passionate about photography and wildlife photography, so he has recognized a trend in the photographic safari genre, and he is going to be providing fully equipped photographic safaris in the new year. And also an, uh, quite an unusual trend that's happening is the sleeping out in the bush in tree houses, <laughs> which in Tambo Tree Camp is almost doing, but a little bit more luxurious. There's a huge trend for treehouse sleeping. And I think Courtney loves the fact of sleeping out on a platform in the middle of the bush with a radio and really experiencing what it would be like in those old pioneer days. So that's a trend that he's noticed and is going to now deliver on in this year. So exciting things on the go. Well, have a look for that. Africaonfoot.com is the website. If you want to find out about the photographic trips and about sleeping out in a tree, just get hold of them at africaonfoot.com. And um, besides all the other information, you might need to go and stay at the lodges if that's more your style. Or if you'd like to go and do a walking safari with them or a safari in a vehicle, you can have your pick. You don't have to do one or the other. Also, as Nikki said, if you want to book possibly to help you with the arrangements. Sun Safaris will be able to help you and you'll be able to find out everything you need to know from them. So it sounds, as you said earlier, one of those bucket list things to do. Start saving and planning for that. And uh, possibly 2014 will be your year to go and explore 
the Classeri Private Game Reserve. Nikki, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Thank you so much, Karen. Yeah, lots of fun. Thanks very much. As I mentioned at the beginning, Nikki Arthur owns her own company called Nikki Arthur PR, and she spent some time up at the Classeri Private Game Reserve with some journalists who, very lucky journalists they were, that went up there and had a great time. So if you'd like to find out more about what to do and where to go when you get there, www.africaonfoot.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, Frankie Black's in studio again with us this evening, and she's the assistant editor of Travel Ideas magazine. And she says that instead of leaping into an office job after university, a lot of graduates opt for an adventure overseas, and yachting is a popular choice. Frankie, welcome back to the show. Is this something you did? Thanks, Karen. Yes, it is indeed. I finished uh, my studies and I wanted an adventure, so I looked at a few options. I looked at teaching overseas in the East, working on a kibbutz, maybe picking grapes in Australia, but yachting really was was the best option for me. I saw a lot of my friends, I'd sort of see their Facebook pictures, and they were constantly in these exotic locations, and I thought, wow, well, you get paid really well, and it just seemed like a really good option to travel the world. So yes, I actually did that. I headed to Fort Lauderdale. So how did it work? What did you do on the yacht? Well, I think firstly, you've got to realize there's two yachting centers in the world. There's the Mediterranean. You can either go there or you can go to the Caribbean. And if you opt for the Caribbean option, you would you would start off in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. So I headed over there and um, I landed a job as a stewardess, um, which is your entry-level job on a, on a yacht. Um, it was a 145-foot yacht, five staterooms, very, very fancy. I mean, this, the people who own these yachts are just the richest richest of the richest people in the world pretty much and um, so yeah I was a stewardess which means you pretty much work on the interior of the yacht and you're a glorified um, maid essentially that's what you do so you you're making beds you're doing ironing you cleaning toilets you're cleaning bathrooms um, you're serving guests you do everything that that you would do pretty much to clean a house essentially but it's on steroids it's literally you would take an earbud to clean a sink so it's very very particular and you're constantly cleaning but you are also traveling the world and you're making more money that you, than you would make in any other entry-level job so as a girl um, being a stewardess would be your entry-level job but most of the guys would go into um, becoming deckhands which is pretty much everything exterior so they're washing the boat and you're like a glorified car washer essentially <laughs> <laughs> right so before you got there though there's some things we have to get through now what about visas and all the sort of do you need any sort of training do you need any qualifications what do, what do you need before you actually physically get there well Karen I before I went I knew nothing about it so I did extensive research into the process and um, the first thing you need to do is look into your visa so if you want to go to Fort Lauderdale um, you need a B1, B2 visa, um, preferably the 10-year visa, which is really your holiday visa. But it does allow you to work on boats that are not American-flagged boats. So it's essentially international waters, I guess, and it's a it's foreign flag. So um, therefore, you can work on it. So you need to look at your visa. Um, that's the first thing you would do in, in 
in South Africa, get your visa sorted. And then in terms of qualification, you need to get an STCW 95. Um, and that's a four or five day course that you do. You can do it in Cape Town or you can actually do it in Fort Lauderdale if you want. Um, I did mine in Cape Town. And what it is, it, it, it includes three sections. So the first one is safety at sea. The second one is firefighting, basic firefighting skills and basic first aid. Um, the, the firefighting was particularly scary. We had to go into a container that was on fire and literally put it out. So that was quite an experience. But all of these skills are obviously really valuable. Even so, after you come back from the yachting Well, exactly. Thing, so. First aid, mm. all that. So so you do your qualification. And then it's also recommended that you get a ENG1, which is a medical um, certificate just to say that you're in good health and so forth. And once you've got those, you're pretty much ready to go on the job hunt. How do you do you get involved with this thing now? Do you, are there companies that organize for these positions? Do you have to apply to specific companies who place people on these yachts? How does that part work? Um, well, you obviously you would prefer you the best is to actually just get there and do it when you're there because that's where all the networking and placement really takes place. So I just flew myself over to well not myself but I got on a plane and got myself to um, Fort Lauderdale and. With no job, nothing set up. I just had my my qualifications and my visa. So I got myself there. I booked into a crew house. A crew house is pretty much like a backpackers, but aimed at yacht, yacht crew. Which so, is obviously where your networking starts. Well, that's it. So all the girls who were in my dorm, they were all in the same boat as me, pardon the pun. But so that was great. And we actually became really good friends and had a good time together. Um, and we were all looking for jobs. So what you would do is you'd either connect with um, the crew agencies, which is pretty much they the middle middleman between you and the boat. So you would go and give them your resume and they would they could place you. Another option is to literally walk the docks. It's a very humiliating option, but a good one. And um, you just literally go up and down the marina docks and you hand out your business card and you try and meet um, the yacht crew and just get your name out there. Another way is just to go out at night. There's lots of other yacht crew who go out to the local bars and restaurants and so forth. So that's a really good place to network. And another option in Fort Lauderdale in particular is a place called Smallwoods. It's a shop where um, they sell all things yachting related. And there's also an area in the shop with files where you can actually put your CV and then yacht crew and captains would come in and go through this file. And if they like what they see, they'll give you a call. And that's exactly how I actually landed my first job. So it's a little bit dicey. It's not as easy as people who leave South Africa with, on say, for example, going to work on the cruise ships or going off to go and work in America at the golf estates and the country clubs and those sort of things, because those positions are all defined before you leave South Africa. Yes. So you get there, your job is sorted and your accommodation is sorted and you know what you're going to do and where you're going to do it. Yes. In your case, it's a little bit more nerve-wracking because you are flying off into the unknown effectively. Yes. You need to be able to support yourself initially because you don't know how long it's going to take to get a position, but if this is something you really want to do, it's almost a case of just going out there and just giving it your best shot effectively. Absolutely. I think when you, if you're sort of in your early mid 20s, it is quite harrowing, but it's such great life experience. I mean, some people do arrange a job beforehand, but it's not that easy. I mean, a lo most people I met literally just got there because that's where you can make it happen. And it took me three weeks um, to find a job. So it's actually not that bad. And I was actually thinking about it last night. It's just such good experience for the real world, if you will, because finding a job can take 
months, you know. So, and it's just a matter of persisting. And you will find something if you just follow the right channels. But yes, it is a bit of a gamble. How long did you do this for? The I, job itself? About six months. I land, the first yacht I worked, I worked on two yachts in total. The first one I worked on, we ended up going um, on a six week trip to the Dominican Republic. And I think the, one of the most notorious things about yachting is the crew politics. There's a lot of that. Um, you, you living on a yacht, small quarters, close quarters, with you know anything from seven to twenty crew members. So there's usually one or two bad apples, and there's just you hear all sorts of horror stories. The yacht I was on, I had a captain who was very problematic. So um, I didn't last too long on that boat. As I said, you're literally in that person's hands and you're out at sea. So it is quite quite a risk in a way not safety wise but it's it's not always a good fit so so that was the, the one boat and then the other one I was on that boat for about three months and quite simple obviously once you're in the business to move around and and go from one boat to the other because they know that's you true. now yes that's it you, they've yeah. seen what you're doing yes I mean if you've if you've had one job it's much easier when you're green they call it green you've never been on yacht, yachts mm. before that's when it's a little harder but yeah once you've got a little bit of experience it's much easier so where else did you go you said you went to the Dominican Republic where else did you go uh, we went to the Bahamas also to Atlantis actually um, so we were docked there so um, that was quite fun we got got to go to the water parks there and all sorts of fun things and I also spent some time in Florida going up to Palm Springs up in the north so I did a fair amount of traveling on that side of the world. So you do get time off I mean you're not sort of on the boat cleaning the hand basin with a tooth with an earbud sort of permanently you do manage to have time off to see where you've landed. Yes I think it really depends on the program the yacht that you're on captains run their ships very differently so some captains are like Hitler you won't ever get a time off if the if the owner's coming on board. But the nice thing is when the owners are, are on board, then it's pretty much a full-time job. Um, you need to be on call 24-7 pretty much. Um, however, if they're not on board and you're just docked somewhere, then it turns into an eight to five job. So then it just becomes, hours become pretty regular and you get to then explore the, the place in the evenings. And um, the nice thing is you save all the money that you make because food is provided, accommodation is provided. So when you do get a holiday, you've saved so much money and you get to obviously do with travel with it or whatever you choose to. Was this something you'd ever go back to do again? What are the pros and cons of, of doing this? I mean, obviously the, the cons are possibly not having the good fit with the crew and the pros are getting to see what you can of the world on your trips. I think that for me, the biggest con was that it's quite mind-numbing, the work itself, and I found that quite challenging. I needed something a little bit more stimulating. As I said, you're literally cleaning all day long and serving guests. I think if hospitality is your thing, however, it could be a really great option because especially starting off as a, as a junior stew, but eventually you, you do work your way up to the head stew, and that means that you are obviously head of interior, and you are then in charge of buying all the food, making sure it, you know, every you've got everything you need before trips take off. You are in charge of handling the guests. So it's very much hospitality orientated when you are in that more senior position. So if that is your thing, then, you know, that's a really good option. Um, also, if you are the chef on board, that's another great option if cooking is your passion. For me, however, it was a challenge just to clean all day long. So I didn't. So that for me is probably one of the biggest cons. And uh, as you say, the politics, but on the more positive side, 
it's a fabulous thing to do in your 20s, especially in your 20s as a starting off position because you just get paid so well, you get to see the world. And you're also actually meeting really, really interesting people from across the world. It's a very international option. Crew members come from South Africa, Australia, England, America, all over the show. So very, very interesting from that perspective. Do you still keep in touch with any of your crewmates? Yes, absolutely. The guy who was the engineer on the first boat I worked on, he actually, after he left the bat yacht, he bought himself a sailboat with his girlfriend and they cruised all across the Caribbean. So we used to go and join them a couple of times on their sailboat and we became great friends. So I've made quite a few really good friends from that industry. Well, it's a very different way of spending your gap year or whatever you want to do after matric, something different. And as you say, maybe if you're wanting to go into the hospitality industry, it could be a good learning curve for you. You might figure out you don't really like that terribly much or gee whiz this really is something I want to do so it might be good for you from that perspective as well. Yes I think also yeah, hospitality but also engineering obviously each boat needs an engineer mm. each boat needs a captain each boat needs a first mate so those more senior positions are much more sustainable I think and the engineers thoroughly enjoy what they do mostly the ones I've met the chefs also do so there's some really good career options on these yachts I'm speaking from the junior stoop position, which is different, but um, a lot of potential, I think. Well, it sounds fabulous, Frankie. Gosh, and uh, any likelihood you'd be likely to go back again, or have you done your bit now? Oh, you never know, Corin. <laughs> <laughs> you tend to go all over the place, so maybe one day you'll think, oh, gosh, maybe another couple of months on a boat. Oh, you never know. You yeah, never know. Great paycheck. <laughs> right. Well, Frankie, is thank you so much once again for joining us, and I look forward to your next adventure because I'm sure you'll come and tell us about it. I'm sure I will. I'd love to. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Corin. I was chatting there with Frankie Black. She's the assistant editor of Travel Ideas, and if you'd like to find out what Travel Ideas have in their magazine, their quarterly publication, have a look at the website. It's www www.travelideas.co.za Time to travel with Karen Key. And before I go, just a reminder, it's a new year, and I did mention this last week as well. I'd like to reinvent, if you like, the series I was running last year called My Town. So if you'd like to let me know something interesting about where you live, something interesting that people can come and have a look at or just to see or to do wherever it is you are, please let me know because we had some wonderful submissions from listeners last year and we had some great interviews out of those. So please let me know about interesting things in the area where you live. But that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report. And it's our monthly property law program next week when I'll be joined, as usual, by attorney Marlon Chevalu. And this month we'll also be joined by conveyancing attorney Frank Holland. That's the Law Report on Monday the 20th of January. And a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. And as well as the, if your submissions for the My Town feature, you can email those to me at travel at safm.co.za. Or if you like, you can post something on Facebook. But if you do post something on Facebook, please always remember to include your email address or some sort of contact details that I can get hold of you because I would obviously like to chat with you about whatever it is you're suggesting. Because if you know about the 
series from last year. We had some wonderful interviews, but I had to be able to contact the listeners who submitted those. So please do that either on the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM, or by email on travel at safm.co.za.